0: So this morning's sermon is a a two-part sermon uh, on Jesus' power over his enemies. And the reason that I'm preaching on this on the eve of Christmas and not your typical baby in a manger sermon is because I think this passage we're going to look at directly relates to the Christmas story. The idea that Jesus has power over his enemies. You see, one of the main reasons why God became a man and took on a body that first Christmas morning was to grow up, to crush and destroy the enemies of God and man. And this has been predicted from long ago. Psalm 110 says of the Messiah, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies Your footstool. Or Isaiah 11, verse 4. With righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He shall slay the wicked. Or what about this one from some of the very first pages of the Bible. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3. God says to the serpent, the devil, who deceived Adam and Eve, this is what you can expect to be coming for you. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. You see, that lowly baby lying in a manger, though he came as a humble servant king, who would lay down his life and give himself to save his people from their sins, that's not all that he came to do. He came to crush and destroy every enemy and to rule over all of them as the King of kings and as the Lord of lords. And in our passage this morning, that's exactly what we are going to see. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, destroying The works of the devil and bringing freedom and grace and life to sinners like you and me. And so you can turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 26 to 39. Luke chapter 8, verses 26 to 39. I know I've been reading a lot of long passages this morning, but it is the Word of God. So... It's far better than anything I'm going to say. So fill more of my sermon with the word of God and less of my words, the better. Then they sailed to the country of Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus stepped out on the land, there he met a man from the city who had demons. And for a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. And when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. And for many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons, had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. And so he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank and into the lake and drowned. And when the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding countries of Gerasenes asked him, to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. And so he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged Jesus that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. For our sermon this morning, there's really just one main point that I hope to develop. And that point is that Jesus holds all power over his supernatural enemies. Jesus holds all power over his supernatural enemies. And as we'll look at later, there's really two ways that you can respond to that truth. You can respond in recognizing that Jesus is King and Lord and you can turn to him in repentance and faith and follow his will for your life or you can ignore and suppress the truth about God and send him away out of your life because you fear the consequences that come with following him. Before we look at the responses let's spend some time looking at this main point. Jesus holds all power over his supernatural enemies. And of course the chief supernatural enemy of God is Satan, and you might be wondering, is Satan really that bad? Is he, is he really that fierce of an enemy? I don't really see much of Satan's activity around, unless you live in Merrickville, of course. <laughs> well, when you look around the world and, and see the suffering and the pain and the death and the wickedness and the injustice, know that all of that is in part because of Satan. Satan. It was Satan disguised as a serpent who who came and tempted Adam and Eve, plunging all of humanity into sin and bringing about all of the effects of the fall that we see and experience around us. Now, it doesn't mean that we are blameless. A lot of the evil in the world is not because of Satan, it's because of us. But a lot of it is because of Satan. Satan hasn't stopped his rebellion against God, but he continues to oppose God and his goodness at every chance. Now, Satan can't touch God. Satan can't, can't harm God. He can't go and, and tempt God or deceive God or torment God. And so instead of waging his war through attacking God, he instead attacks mankind, those who have been created in the image of God, just like he did in the garden. He didn't go after God, he went after God's creation. See, Satan roams around the earth seeking to accuse and to torment and to deceive and to enslave humanity. We're told in 1 Peter 5 that he's prowling around like a lion looking for someone to devour. We're told in Hebrews 2 that he is enslaving people to the fear of death. We're told in 1 Thessalonians 3 that he's tempting believers to turn away from God and to turn to sin. Perhaps the saddest one of them all. 2 Corinthians 4 that Satan is blinding the minds of the unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel. And so yes, Satan is powerful. And he is a wicked and evil enemy both of God and mankind. Now one of the ways that Satan seeks to Extend his rebellion against God is through the work of demons. I'm not sure how much you actually think about demons. Hopefully, not too much, or you're treading down a dangerous road. But hopefully, not too little either, or you're treading down an equally dangerous road. I think C.S. Lewis says it well in, in the preface to his book, The Screwtape Letters. He says there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils, that is the demons. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, that is the devils, are equally pleased by both errors. And hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. You see, it's too dangerous to be too concerned with demons and the supernatural. It can lead you into some wonky practices and obsessions. You can also start to, you know, see them under every bush, attributing everything and anything bad to them. Hannah and I joke about a meme that we saw on the internet where it says, um, God's word says, don't be anxious about anything. And then there's a TV preacher saying, be careful, there might be demons in your thrift store finds. <laughs> you see, you can think demons are everywhere and controlling everything and you can start to fear them and when you fear something, you give it power over you when you fear it. But it's also dangerous to think that demons are, you know, not existent, that they're a, a thing of the past, that, that they don't carry any sort of power at all in our world today. And I think that tends to be the view of of most of us living here in the Western world. If you go to nations outside the West, you go down to South America, you head over to Africa, they believe heavily in the demonic and they're seeing the demonic and they're constantly aware of the battle between believers and the demonic forces of the age. Now is that because in those cultures they're just far more sinful than we are and and the devil is more active because of that? I don't think so. That's right, Dusty. I don't think so. You know, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't bet my house on this, but I think you know, Satan and his demons intentionally manifest themselves less extravagantly here in the West. And that's because so many people just, just don't believe in the supernatural. And, and there's a naturalist explanation for everything. And, and Satan wants to keep it that way. You know, Satan is fine with that. You know, if, if you're one of those people who's like, this is all just fairy tales and myths, all this demon talk, You know, Satan loves that. He's patting you on the back for believing that. It's easier to attack an enemy that doesn't believe that you're there than one who does. And so it's not that the demons aren't active here in, in the West. They're just acting more subtly. So not as to provoke a, a greater belief in the supernatural. And so ultimately, then, when, when thinking about demons, the proper view of demons is to recognize that yes, they are out there. And they are opposing God and serving their master, seeking to torment and to deceive. But as we shall see in our passage, they're no match for the power of Christ. Now I've finished my introduction, we'll get into So there's a few certain details about this exorcism that are unique from Jesus' other exorcisms in Scripture. He's casted out demons already in the book of Luke, but this one is unique. And and the unique features that are highlighted for us lead us back to our main point. to, To show Jesus' power over his supernatural enemies. And the first unique feature is this. It's the place where the exorcism takes place. Verse 26 says, Then they sailed to the country of Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. Which is opposite Galilee. And when Jesus had stepped out on the land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. Now, the place where Jesus arrives is Gentile territory. It's on the east side of the sea of, of the the Jordan River and, and the Sea of Galilee. And so, and, and, and you can also tell that it's Gentile territory because the farmers there are farming pigs. That's, that's something that, that no Jew uh, would tolerate among them. And the fact that Jesus performs this exorcism on Gentile territory shows us two things about Jesus' power. The first is, if he is to gain victory, it will be a more difficult one because it's on foreign soil here. Now, you sports fans know the teams always play better when they have the home field advantage. When you're playing in a foreign place, you have other challenges to overcome besides just the team that you're playing. There's a loud crowd. You're not used to practicing on this field. You've got to travel a long way uh, to the arena that you're playing. And there's all these other things that are kind of weighed against you. And that's, that's Jesus' case. He's, he's on foreign soil here. He's, he's, he's already fighting an uphill battle. And then secondly... The Gentile nations that Jesus is now entering into have been enslaved to Satan and the demons for a long time. Now, this might be a bit of a hot take, but I think that many of the, go- the, the false gods that the Gentile nations have worshipped throughout the years and, and the false gods that they're still worshipping today, I believe, are, are actually demons. You know Psalm 106 talks about the Israelites and how they abandoned the one true God and went to worship other gods and idols, sacrificing their children to them. And it actually says that they were sacrificing their children to the demons. It's not just an Old Testament thing. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, when he's talking about the food offerings and sacrifices to idols, he says they're offering and sacrificing to the demons. And so many of these false gods, Baal, Moloch, the Greek gods, I believe, are demons who have enslaved the, Gentiles peop- the Gentile peoples to, to worship of them. And so Jesus, being on Gentile territory here, he's now entering into the den of the lion. He's entering into the, the grasp of these evil demons who have been controlling these people for thousands of years. But the most important thing that Jesus stepping onto Gentile territory here shows, is a big step in the redemptive plan of God. You see, for much of history, God's primary working has been through his covenant people, the Jews. We read the Old Testament, there's some odd instances of of Gentiles coming and being a part of the people of God, Rahab or, or Naaman, or the only really missionary book, is the book of Jonah. He's called to go to the Ninevites. But for the most part, God is is concerned with his covenant people, the the nation and people of Israel. But with the coming of Jesus, all of that changes. The Jewish Messiah is not just the Messiah of the Jews, but he's the Savior of the whole world, who knows no ethnic boundaries. He is the King of Israel, but he's not just the king of Israel. He's the king of the nations, and his kingdom and redeeming power have no geographical limits. Satan has enslaved the Gentile nations for a long time, but Jesus is coming to change all of that. And so that's the first unique thing. Jesus is on Gentile territory. The second unique thing about this exorcism is the strength of the demons that he's taking on. You know, first we see it's, it's not just one demon possessing the man. In verse 30, they call themselves legion, as in a legion of a thousand Roman soldiers. And the, the demons call themselves that because there are many of them. And then we also see the strength of the demon, by what they're, the demons, by what they're doing to this poor man. You know, verse 27 tells us, for a long time, he had worn no clothes, and he had lived in a house. Not, and he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. And then down in verse 29, it says, For many a time it seized him, and he was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. So this demon gave him the power to break iron chains and to flee into the desert and in Mark's account of it it says too that the demon was causing him to cut and slit his wrists and his bodies and, and his body. And so this is a a evil and a powerful group of demons that have possessed this man. And the point is then by telling us all of these unique features that that Jesus is not facing some sort of of rookie demon. You know I'm I'm undefeated in my wrestling career against my family members but it's my wife and my kids who are all under five years old and so it's not a very impressive record that i have but jesus here he's not taking on these weak and pathetic little demons he's taking on the best of the best so to speak dusty no more okay and if we line up our two sides here jesus appears to be outmatched He's going up against an army of demons and he looks like this might be a problem for him. It's like the passage that I read earlier of David and Goliath. David is is standing there before Goliath, a a young shepherd boy. Saul himself says, "You're, you're just a youth, probably only about 13 or 14 years old with nothing but stones and a slingshot in his hands. And he's facing off against A champion, it says. A man who goes and does this and fights people all the time. Who stands nine foot, nine inches tall, bearing 125 pounds of armor and wielding a spear where the head itself is 15 pounds. And so in appearance, David looks like he's about to get literally squashed by Goliath. And the situation we have with Jesus is is playing out similarly. I mean, you've got this carpenter from Nazareth that has just stepped off his boat from Galilee. He's taking on an army of demons. But we, of course, know that though Jesus is outnumbered, that Jesus is not outmatched. Look at verse 28 of our passage. And when he saw Jesus, he cried out and he fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. See, these mighty demons who have had their way with this man in this land for many years now cower in the presence of Jesus. They know that whatever power, or authority they carried, the work of the devil that they had been doing, is going to come to an end because standing before them is the Son of the Most High God. the passage says that they're, they're like pathetically begging him because they recognize what he has the power to do to them. Now, that's an interesting conversation that Jesus has here in verses 31 and 32. It says, And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. And so he gave them permission. And so you notice here that the demons say they they begged to Jesus not for him to send them into the abyss. The abyss. And I want to explain what is meant by the abyss and why the demons are just trembling and begging that Jesus not send them into the abyss. See, when I used to read this passage a few years ago, I thought that the abyss meant into nowhere. You know, the, the demons didn't want Jesus to send them into nowhere. They wanted to still go and possess something and so they ask if Jesus will send them into the pigs. But I realized that's a wrong interpretation. See, the abyss is an actual place It's an actual place. The abyss, I believe, is a place where the cruelest and vilest of the demons are being held in chains awaiting their judgment. And there's two passages that talk about this. The first one is Jude chapter six, is, is Jude verse six. Listen to these words. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. The other passage is 2 Peter chapter 2, but I won't read that. And so what we see here is that there's these certain fallen angels, these, these demons who have abandoned and rebelled against God, who have stepped out of their boundary as spirits and started to wreak havoc and evil in the world. They've been chained up by God. And they've been thrown into the abyss where they are chained in eternal darkness awaiting their judgment. And you might be thinking, well, if this place exists where God can chain up the vilest of demons, why doesn't he just throw Satan in there? Well, God, as usual, is already one step ahead of you, if that's the question you're asking If you read Revelation 20, it says, And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss, and he locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore. Now depending on your view of the end times, you think that Satan is already in the abyss or you think that Satan is headed to the abyss very soon where God is going to chain him up and throw him in. And that's my view. I mean, God right now in his infinite wisdom has reasons for not throwing Satan in, into that bottomless pit. But the time is coming. I believe it's coming soon when the Lord is going to do that. And so back to our passage, this idea of the abyss is the reason why the demons are so afraid of Jesus. Because he has the power to send them into the bottomless pit and to lock them away forever until the day when they are thrown into the lake of fire when Christ comes again. I'm not sure about you, but I find this idea to be a pretty flippant bossing move on God's part. I mean, he literally has an inescapable dungeon that is set aside for the demons. And if that doesn't cause you to, to wonder and marvel at the power of our God, I'm, I'm not sure what will. And yet we see that again, Jesus in his infinite wisdom doesn't Cast them into the abyss, the abyss. But he grants the request and lets them go and, and possess these pigs that are overgrazing in the field. Now, I'm not sure the exact reason why Jesus does this. But I think it's because he knows what's going to happen when they enter the pigs. In mean, verse 33 tells us that the, the demons came out of the man and they entered the pigs. And the herd rushed down a steep bank into the lake And they drowned. See, what's happening here is a foreshadowing of the future doom that is to come upon Satan and his demons. The pigs rushed down the hill and they drowned in a lake of water, but a time will come when the demons will be thrown not into a lake of water, but into a lake of fire, where they will be tormented and punished for all of eternity. And so Jesus is showing them their end without casting them into the abyss. See, when Jesus stepped on shore at the beginning of this passage, there was a battle that was ensuing for the control of the cosmos. Who is it is going to reign as king? Is it going to be Satan and his demons, or is it going to be, to, or, or is it going to be the King and the Lord Jesus Christ? And we see here that Jesus, with ease, shows that even the most dreadful of enemies are no match for his divine authority and kingship. And this scene here, this battle, it's just a primer. This is, just a, this is on the preliminary card to the death blow that Jesus dealt to Satan when he, went to the, when he went to the cross and he died for our sins. You see, on the cross, Satan thought the victory was his. You know, he had led the people in rebellion against the Son of God. He had convinced them to sacrifice the king of glory, And yet, we know that even what Satan thought was his victory was really the victory of God. That it was the plan of God to destroy Satan and the power that he ha- held over humanity through the death of the Son of God. That's why I'm positive on the outlook of the world. Even the death of Christ was to defeat The evils of this world. God cannot lose. God cannot lose no matter how much the devil thinks he's gaining ground. Hebrews 2 verse 14 to 15 says, Christ himself likewise partook in flesh and blood that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. See, because of the cross of Christ and his subsequent resurrection from the grave, the beginning of the end has come for that great dragon, Satan. He's been dealt a death blow and he's now slowly bleeding out until eventually Christ comes again and finishes him off for good. As Romans 16 promises us, God will soon crush Satan under your foot. There's many names that I think of about Jesus during the time of Christmas, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, wonderful Counselor, mighty God, Word of God. But lately, I think my personal favorite is Jesus the dragon slayer, that he has thrown down that great and ancient dragon now very quickly, what are some points of application from this passage? Well, first and foremost, we have no reason to fear the enemy. Again, thinking back to David and Goliath, David sees Goliath standing there and, is, and, and sees that he is this mighty warrior and yet David knows who is on his side. And so he can say without any fear or tremor in his voice, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? The God who lives, Jesus Christ, is on our side. Whom shall we fear? It's Satan and his demons that run in fear of the church of Jesus Christ. Now, on the contrary, if you're here, and you're someone who has not placed your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you have every reason to fear. You see, there's only two sides in this war for the cosmos. You're either with God or you're against him. There is no idea of neutrality. There's no idea of I'm 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 not going to worship God and I'm also not going to worship myself and Satan. See, either Jesus is your king And he'll grant you forgiveness from sin and protection from the evil one and freedom from the slavery that he brings upon you and a new life and a new heart. Or he isn't your king. And you'll remain in your sin and slavery and the devil is going to have his way with you and lead you to the same place that he's headed. To hell for all eternity. Revelation 9 is a chapter that shows What happens when we follow our way? You know, Satan is released and all of the demons that are trapped within the abyss and the bottomless pit are let out and Revelation 9 says that they come and they start to sting and attack everyone who does not have the mark of God upon their forehead. See, Satan makes it look like the pleasures of the world are nice. He makes it look like his way is the way that is going to bring you joy. But in the end, he's going to turn on you and his demons are going to come and they're going to afflict you and they're going to destroy you. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus offers you today the free gift of salvation. He will save you from your sins. He will save you from the power and enslavement of the evil one. He's going to take you and he's going to make you new and he will make you a a new creation with a new life where you have the power to now overcome sin and the evil one. And if you'll humble yourself and you'll turn to him in faith and repentance and submit to him as the only true and rightful king of your life, then he offers all of that to you. And so don't be like the villagers in our passage this morning. They saw... And they witnessed the powery power and the victory of God with their very own eyes. But they sent Jesus away. They didn't want any part of him or his kingdom. The passage says when they saw this man who they, they themselves had bound with shackles and saw the power that he had, when they saw him healed and sitting in right mind clothed at the feet of Jesus, they're afraid and they ask him to leave. They're afraid of his power, and they're also afraid of what it might cost them to follow Jesus. Mark, in his gospel, recounts these events, and he says that the herd that was sitting there was a herd of about 2,000 pigs that went and drowned in the river. Now, that's a lot of, a lot of money. That's a lot of bacon. And the truth is that following Jesus might also cost you a lot. Not necessarily financially, but maybe I tell you one thing, it will cost you the throne of your heart. It will cost you your life. You will no longer live your life for the glory of your name and the pleasure of your will. But you'll live your life for your Lord and your King Jesus Christ. And that's going to cost you. It's going to cost you a lot. Jesus says, take up your, not vacation bags, your cross. And follow me he says that we need to do so every single day but there's also good news because following jesus is going to grant you an eternity of joy in the presence of your savior that will far outweigh the sacrifices that you are making now what profit a man if he gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul now a second application Is that because Christ has power over his supernatural enemies, we do not need to fear. And on top of that, we as his church, filled with his spirit, we go out now and we plunder the house of the enemy. Again, notice what happens in the story of David and Goliath. David, by the power of God, slays Goliath and he goes and he takes Goliath's sword and he picks up Goliath's massive head and he cuts it off. And he holds up the head in victory. And then the armies of Israel see the victory of their king. And they come rushing out after him. And they plunder and attack the enemies of God. Those who were once cowering and afraid to face their enemies arise in the power of their king. And likewise, our king. The Lord Jesus Christ stands there with the head of the great dragon who was slain at Calvary and we here once captive to the enemy, once afraid of the powers of the darkness, we go and we follow our king and we plunder the forces of the evil one. Jesus has won the victory and the enemy, he's, he's on the run and we as his church are called to go and walk in that victory and extend it. We don't need to be afraid. We don't need to be afraid that that people are going to look at us weird and they're going to hate us because of the gospel. We are going to triumph. The church of God is going to triumph and so we bring the gospel with the power, which is the power of God unto salvation into all spheres of our life. We go and preach the gospel to our governments. We go and preach the gospel to to those in, in dark places. We go and Preach the gospel to all who will listen until every enemy is placed under the feet of Christ. And we see in our passage that 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 is the natural response of someone whose heart has been changed by Jesus. You know, that once demonic man delivered from the grasp of the evil one begs Jesus to let him come with him and join him in ministry. We see that Jesus has different plans for this man. And he tells him that his mission is is to go and proclaim the goodness of the Lord and the freedom that he provides to all those who place their faith in him. And in verse 39, it says that he went away. This man who was once enslaved went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. See, that too is our mission, to go and proclaim how much Jesus has done for you. And so as you go home and celebrate this Christmas season with your family, do so with a great smile on your face and great joy in your heart, knowing that you are celebrating the power of Jesus Christ over all of his supernatural enemies. And you can also do so with courage and with boldness and with eagerness, knowing that your king has set a task before you that is not yet complete. The evil one is still out there blinding the minds of unbelievers. His demons are still out there making a last-ditch effort to wreak havoc on this earth. But the power of the gospel, and, and, and with that in our hands, and with the name of Jesus Christ upon our lips, we can extend this victory that Jesus has won. And we can proclaim liberty and freedom to the captives. And God will deliver from sin and from Satan. Let me pray.